at first glance, it seems pretty silly to fear things that haven't happened or might never happen, right? The truth is, as we're going to discuss in this episode, that most of us actually do this on a regular basis, and some more than others. It's a pretty normal process. It occurs in your brain. We're going to talk about how that works. And it's one that you're probably deeply, maybe unfortunately, familiar with, and that is anxiety. So in this episode, we're going to talk about how all this occurs in the brain and what we can do to take control of this response and live more peaceful lives. So let's get into all that. Welcome to The Social Brain. I'm Andrew. And I'm Taylor. And this is a show where we dive into how the brain works. If you've ever wondered what's going on inside your mind, even the things that you're not even aware of, then this is the place where we can unpack that and really explore it. As always, I like to kind of start with some definitions so we know what we're talking about. Um, so first off, anxiety just on its own, we're going to talk about how it's different from fear and how it's different from like a threat response or just fight or flight response. But anxiety is a response to kind of potential future threats, things that might happen in the future. Um, it engages a physiological stress response, that fight or flight response, through the sympathetic nervous system to enhance threat detection. But there's also a lot more going on at kind of the cognitive level that we're going to be talking about. And then on the other hand, uh, maladaptive anxiety is kind of a, a combination of sort of expecting the worst and then overreacting to it. So it's like an extreme version of of anxiety, like adaptive anxiety, which this can lead to kind of avoidance, the tendency to avoid challenges or just life in general. Um, and then at the at sort of the extreme end of that would be like anxiety disorders. And we can talk more about that, but let's, what are you, what are your thoughts on anxiety, Taylor? Well, I mean, let's get vulnerable for a second, right? Like, uh, we are going to get into a lot of the, the academic stuff in regards to this, what's going on in the brain, what's going on in terms of how we define these things, how we look for these things. Uh, but this is something I'm intimately aware of. I, I can't speak for you, Andrew, but um, I deal with this in my everyday life, right? There's this this great quote from philosophy from Kierkegaard that anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. Uh, we as humans are kind of in this situation where we have so much going on in our lives. We have so many things to worry about, right? And we're also creatures that have the ability to see so far into the future, right? You think about any of these other animals in the animal kingdom, and most of the things that they're working with are immediately right in front of them. I mean, we have certain primate species that can think kind of further in, into the future or whatever, but most of our ancestors, in terms of animals that came before us, uh, were dealing with their immediate environment. They were dealing with threats that they could see, right? Threats that were right there that they had to run away from, right? I got to run away from the tiger. I got to engage all of these, these like flight processes to get away, or I got to fight them, right? Uh, the one thing that we're really going to highlight a lot through this episode is that so much of that circuitry from our ancestors is still conserved in our bodies. Our bodies are engaging these like, ah, I gotta, I gotta run away or I gotta fight or whatever. 
But we have this incredible capacity to think about these things in cognitive terms that none of our ancestors before were able to do. We're able to think about our goals at work. We're able to think about our social relationships. We're able to think about our financial security, all of these things that that have certain threats associated with them, right? Like, I'm not gonna hit my deadline. That's almost to me like getting mauled by a tiger, right? And my body <laughs> is gonna react in a very similar way. And so we really kind of throughout this episode want to highlight kind of what are the components that are coming from this kind of ancestral component from these kind of conserved circuits in our brain for defense, for threat, um, and what are these components that are kind of uniquely human, that are attached to our ability to have language, to put words and, and narratives to these things that we're experiencing? Um, and then how do these things interact? Uh, so it's going to be really interesting. And again, this is something that, that I deal with a lot. I'm, I'm in a PhD program. I do this show. I have a child. I have a wife. I have all of these things that I'm juggling every single day. Uh, and it comes with, there's, there's threats to every single one of those needs in my life that can bring their own kind of flavor of anxiety to your life. Yeah. Yeah. I know personally, I'm, I'm definitely familiar with some maladaptive anxiety. I would say, um, I kind of think that any time that you're, you're dealing with uncertainty around something that's important for your maybe not your survival, but, but your well-being or even just your sense of comfort. It seems like for me, that's when anxiety really rears its head. And it's been really potent for me in the last year, especially kind of going independent with my channel, not being supported uh, by an outside funding organization for the last year and really having to kind of step into sort of an entrepreneurial role while also you know, working another job, I, I deliver food on the side, if, if anybody didn't know that. But um, th there's a lot of uh, anxiety that comes along with thinking about what is going to happen to me in the future? Is this going to work out? What do I need to do? Um, what can I do? What are my limitations? And uh, where do I go from here? It can, anxiety can, I think, lead to a kind of, um, what do I want to say, like uh, stasis, a, a, a sort of stop you. It can, it can make it seem like you don't have as much control as you do over things because maybe you're, you're worrying so far into the future and not focusing on what you can control now. Um, and just to kind of like bring some of this to, to, to people's minds, um, you know, like Taylor was saying, we as humans can see so far into the future, or we, we can sort of predict and, and form a model of the future, probably more so than any other species on the planet, thanks partly to our language abilities that no other species has, um, and just our ability to, our, our developed prefrontal cortex to be able to plan and, and uh, think further into the future. Um, we can become anxious at the thought of like, what if in 10 years the uh, economy undergoes a major recession? What is the, like that's something that just so many of those words I just said are just concepts that are, are so abstract, but they can have this real impact on our moment to moment um, experience and well being that that is unique to us. And we're, so it's, I think it's really interesting to kind of get into what 
is this like anxiety in the brain and how does, how is it possible for us to get, you know, so worked up and, um, feel so much tension and, and worry about things that, that might possibly happen, but might never actually occur. And I just want to piggyback on that for a minute, right? Because we live in such an interesting time period where we have access to so much information, right? You were talking about the possibility of the economy crashing, right? We're also seeing all of this information about the, the earth dying, right? About uh, ice caps melting and storms and climate change and, and like political upheaval and like all of these things that in the past there was like this degree of separation between me and those things, right? Like those things were happening out in the world, but they kind of got filtered through to me through these like different mediums, maybe through like a newspaper or whatever. But now it's immediate. I pull out my phone first thing in the morning and I can find like 1500 reasons to worry about what's gonna happen to the world, how that's gonna impact me, right? I, there's so many ways that, that these things become self-relevant. And, you know, I, as a researcher, I study the self. I study the fact that the brain is, is really, really interested in things that are self-relevant. And when you think about that, it's like, what are my goals as an individual, right? What am I trying to accomplish? What kind of social relationships am I trying to maintain? Who do I want to be? And we now have this ability to say, like, all of these things that are happening in the world have this possibility of impacting who I am and what I want to accomplish and my relationships and all of these things. Uh, and we're able to incorporate these things in such an interesting cognitive way. Uh, and what we'll see as we kind of go through this, as we start diving into it, is that a lot of what anxiety is, is a kind of calculation of what the probability of threat is, Right that our brain is trying to calculate, like, should I go do things or are those things too dangerous? I, if you listen back to some of our other episodes, something that I've really, throughout all of the, the stuff that we've talked about and all of the things that we've kind of gotten into, I've really started to think about the brain as, as doing these two fundamental things. On the one hand, we have to go out into the world and we have to explore. We have to do things. We have to find food. We have to find water. We have to make money. We have to form relationships, all of these kind of things. But on the other hand, we also have to monitor whether we're capable of doing those things, whether we have the resources, the energy, the capability, the competence to do those things. And those things are constantly kind of at odds with one another. I want to go out and I want to go do these things, but look at all these times that I failed, right? Mm -hmm. Like, can I go out into the world? Can I do those things? And what we'll kind of get into is that the brain is starting, it's, it's really bad at calculating probabilities, honestly. And we are now in a world too, kind of bringing what I just said about all of this kind of information that's flooding us. The media, the environments that we live in, paint a picture to our brain that the world is a lot more threatening than it actually is. And we tend to overestimate threat in our environment. And our brain uses that as an excuse to tell our body to not go out and explore. And I think that is one of the hallmarks that we really want to get into when it comes to anxiety is that one of the things that really defines kind of dysfunctional anxiety is avoidance. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, and, and that avoidance leads to more avoidance. Like I think of it as, you know, uh, just in a, uh, sort of everyday circumstance, if you have some anxiety about, you know, going out to a party or going out to just uh, be with other people or something like that, and 
your response to that is, you know, more often than not to just avoid it. Like, I'm just going to stay home, watch TV, uh, just, you know, eat my comfort foods and hang out. Like, I'm not saying that's always bad. I definitely do that <laughs> um, sometimes. But but when that is your default response, it's the part of this is training your brain to th to sort of equate safety with avoidance with with uh yeah with staying away from just getting away from that threat or just not even engaging with it in the first place and then what does that do the next time that you have that opportunity to go out or to do something or or challenge yourself in some way you have a bias then towards staying home toward just avoiding that situation and then you don't get the chance to learn that the world wasn't as bad as you first thought it would be that this experience might have been really fun, or at least it just wouldn't have been as bad as, as you first predicted. And so that further narrows your, your, um, your like range of, of possible behaviors down to just staying home, staying home, avoiding, 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 avoiding. And again, yeah, there's a balance between, uh, allowing yourself to sort of like sometimes stay back and, and chill and everything, but also challenging yourself to go out and learn and, and see the world. And one of the things that's, that's really highlighted in a lot of anxiety is the fact that there's an overemphasis on the feeling of anxiety and not the solution moving forward. Uh, and we'll, we'll look as we get into these brain regions in a minute and start looking at what's going on in the brain. There is kind of an overemphasis on thinking about what's going on inside of my body because there's lots of physiological responses associated with anxiety. But the, the point that I'm really trying to cue in on here is that there's not a lot of emphasis on updating the probability, right? On saying, I am actively going out here to try to prove to myself that the world is not as threatening as I think that it is. Because we're, we're building this model in our head of the probability of threat, right? And the only way to update that probability is to actually see that the world is not as threatening as it is, right? But you have to go into that environment with the intention of learning. Right? Because if you're going in convinced that it's threatening, you're going to look for all of the things that are threatening. And it's going to be this self-fulfilling prophecy, this circular kind of logic that kind of keeps you in this loop. Uh, and so we'll get into, and I, I'm not saying that like exposure therapy works for everyone because it absolutely doesn't. Sometimes it's triggering. It makes things worse. There's certain kind of uh, neurochemical things that may be involved with that, especially early in life. Uh, but there is definitely this element of kind of challenging yourself to, to rethink the world, to not catastrophize, to say, you know, you know, what is the worst thing that could happen? And is that really as bad as I think that it is, right? And, and updating this model in your head over and over and over again. So uh, I think we can maybe kind of get into some of the science. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think... Uh... One thing we haven't mentioned that anybody who's vaguely familiar with the neuroscience of anxiety would have heard about is the amygdala. The amygdala is um, this almond, I guess it's sort of almond-shaped structure in the <laughs> temporal lobe. It's beneath the temporal cortex, it's sort of one of these subcortical structures that is closer to the middle of the brain, kind of. Um, and... Many people, I actually did a, a, a quiz on my channel a while back about um, 
is the amygdala the brain's fear center? And I think a majority of people said yes. There was a, a good number who said no. But that meme, that idea that the amygdala is what produces fear and anxiety has kind of made its way into our popular culture, into our thinking. And there was maybe early on in this research, in this field, uh, some reason to believe that that was the case. But we now know that the amygdala is really not solely responsible for fear and anxiety. It's more like it detects as a whole, the amygdala is kind of important for detecting important things in our environment, a sort of salience detector, and especially for threats and other potential sources of danger. So it's, it is obviously like from that point of view, really important for uh, the neurobiology of fear and anxiety, but it's not uh, like, oh, the amygdala turns on and now you feel anxious because the amygdala turns on and you can also uh, feel happy or feel excited or, um, you know, so it's a, it's a more, I would say it's kind of more neutral when it comes to like valence, whether it's positive or negative, but as we'll see, it plays a very important role in detecting threats because it plays this role in detecting just generally what's important uh, and sort of unexpected in our environment. Right. Threats are really important to us, right? Our safety is one of our biggest needs. Uh, and so it's, it's heavily biased towards that stuff. But there's this fascinating history of the science behind the amygdala, behind fear. Uh, a lot of this work was done in, in rodents, in non-human primates, uh, where they were really showing that when you kind of shock a rat or when you do something threatening to a monkey or whatever it is, you get this really reliable amygdala activity. It turns on. And the animals produce behaviors that look like fear, right? The, the rat freezes up or runs away or whatever it is, right? It's things that we as humans equate with like, that's what I do when I'm afraid, right? That's, that's the kind of behavior that I engage in. But as we've kind of moved forward in this research, a lot of it was used as a fuel for developing kind of pharmaceutical drugs for treating anxiety. And there was actually some of the, the top kind of pharmaceutical companies actually had to say, we're not going to do any more kind of production on these drugs because they're all failing, right? We have this animal model where this, this animal looks afraid, does these fear things, and we give them a drug and it stops the fear. Uh, but then we give it to humans and it doesn't work in humans. And this really what we're, what we want to paint with this is that as the research has kind of gone forward, there's a, a great, I mean, Joseph Ledoux is the main kind of guy that did, that kind of spearheaded so much of this work. And now his main goal is to like convince people that the amygdala is not the fear center, that the amygdala is what kicks off defensive posture, that it is what is starting the body's physiological response to the threat. But one of the most important things that we want to highlight moving forward is that fear is an emotion. And emotions, according to a lot of kind of the current neuroscientific theories, are constructed by lots of cognitive pieces. That you have this defensive posture that you take, your heart starts racing, you, you get tense, you get short of breath, you get all of these things. But then all of that needs to then be understood by the rest of the brain, by the cortex, right? You have to say, you know what, my heart's racing. I feel like I need to run away. I'm afraid, right? And that's different than just 
kind of running or your heart beating, right? That's this whole cognitive thing, this story that you're telling to yourself that is different than what the amygdala is doing. Yeah, yeah. And just on that note, even the most uh, like hardline sort of basic emotions theorists in neuroscience, people who studied uh, or, or kind of work in the tradition of Yak Pongsep's work, who I've, we've talked about before in our emotions episode, I've talked about him on my channel. Um, they are still of this mind that um, our actual experience of fear, the human experience of fear, the individual's experience of fear or anxiety, whatever the emotion may be, is constructed in some important way that the cortex has a strong role in not only uh, interpreting those feelings and that um, physiological response, but also in actually sort of changing um, how those subcortical regions react in future scenarios and um, sort of ch being more responsible for the actual experience and the, the cognitive aspect of fear and anxiety. So yeah, I just to kind of back up the point you were saying, I think pretty much all emotions theorists would agree to some extent with that idea. <laughs> and it's, I mean, it's interesting, right? I mean, what this is really saying is that like the amygdala doesn't speak English, doesn't speak Spanish or Chinese or whatever language you're speaking in your head, right? Uh, a lot of the fear process is kind of a narrative process. It's like, it's like, oh, what's going on? Like, oh my gosh, there was a bear, uh, whatever, right? You're, you're going through this, this kind of storytelling procedure of identifying what are those things that I'm afraid of and convincing, convincing yourself that you're right to be afraid of those things. That like, yes, the amygdala should be on because that thing is a real thing out in the world that I need to be afraid of. Where we start to get into kind of maladaptive anxiety, though, is when your cortex starts to paint a picture of the world being a really scary place and telling the amygdala, yes, this is really scary, but it's really not, right? And there's a reason why a lot of these drugs that they created for rodents that work really well for rodents don't work really well for humans. And that's because so much of the anxiety process in humans is kind of prefrontal cortex, is the part of our brain that is really kind of creating these abstract pictures of what's important to me. What are my goals? What are these things that are out in the environment that, that are making me feel this way? Yeah. And those aren't getting kind of targeted yeah. by these. Totally. And I think it's, um, it's worth kind of noting some of the just large scale circuitry of, um, of this like threat response and this anxiety uh, as it's understood, at least in, in the current uh, literature. So we've been talking about the anxiety, sorry, the amygdala um, detecting a potential threat in the environment. Um, and this could be, uh, it would, if, if we're talking about anxiety, remember, it's not going to be something that's immediately an obvious source of danger. Like if you're being attacked in the streets, yes, the amygdala is going to become active. And a lot of this that we're talking about is relevant, but it more like, okay, if you're walking down a dark alleyway at night in a city that you're not very familiar with, and you start to, you know, just thinking, oh, maybe somebody's following me or somebody could be around this corner trying to mug me or something like that. So in that circumstance, when the amygdala is active or when the amygdala becomes active because of this potential source of threat, one of the things it does is 
sends a signal to the prefrontal cortex, right? To this area at the front of the brain, really involved in planning and goals and uh, future-oriented behavior um, and sort of abstract cognitive uh, cognition. This Then the prefrontal cortex, and obviously this is all simplified, but it can send a signal to the thalamus. And the thalamus is this region that's involved in filtering sensory information, filtering information coming from your eyes and your ears and your other senses before it gets to the, to the cerebral cortex, to the sort of sensory processing areas in the cortex. And what that means is the thalamus is a really key structure in determining what you see, what you actually notice in the environment, what gets to this higher processing region. And so the prefrontal cortex having been influenced by the amygdala, is telling the thalamus to search for or to right. fil- uh, put a filter on uh, sensory information such that threat-related information is, is biased to getting to the cortex. So what that means is you are seeing, you're, like what Taylor was talking about earlier, you're looking in your environment and literally more biased towards seeing some source of danger or potential source of danger. So if you hear something behind you, you know, you're more likely to maybe interpret that as footsteps of an approaching attacker or something like that. Or um, it's this, this uh, bias of interpreting Im- ambiguous sensory information as potentially dangerous. So I think that's just an, an interesting circuit to think about in this context. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of pause there because I don't want to get too deep into these brain regions. <laughs> no, I, I really want to like put that into context, right? I think about a time where you just watched some like a horror movie, right? You're like watching The Walking Dead or whatever. And then you, you let your, your dog outside and you're outside with your dog and it's really dark and cold and maybe kind of foggy. And all of a sudden you're just like super on edge and alert. You're like every little shadow looks like something that's out to get you, right? Uh, that is what Andrew's describing is that when you're in these kind of hypervigilant modes where you think that there's something that could potentially hurt you, right? You're walking down that alley. Let's imagine that you're walking down that alley and you just came out of like the best like uh, New Year's party of your life, right? You're just like, you're, you're high in the world, right? Uh, you're not going to interpret that sound behind you as a threat the same way as if you were just like, you're, you're coming out of work, it's two o'clock in the morning, right? You're walking down this alley, you're on edge because in your mind, you have a schema that bad things happen in alleys at two o'clock in the morning. And so your prefrontal cortex is telling, like Andrew said, your thalamus, to filter all of the information for just things that might be threatening, right? Attention is fascinating. Right? We are constantly bringing in billions of bits of information. Everything in our visual field, everything we're hearing, everything we're touching, right? But only a really small amount of it actually gets to our awareness that we're actually working with and manipulating. And what Andrew's saying is a really, really important key piece of information for anxiety and for people to be really acutely aware of in the moment is that if you notice that you're just constantly seeing threatening things, It's because you have this model in your head that's telling your brain to look for threatening things. And it's, there's a lot of work that you do with like cognitive behavioral therapy and things like that, where you're, you're reworking those, those models. 
you're saying, you know what, the world is not a threatening place. Let's let's try to approach the world from a different perspective and, and try to convince our brain to, instead of looking for negative things and threatening things, let's try to convince our brain to start looking for positive things, for good things, for things that are a potential reward to us, right? Um, this is a lot easier said than done. Like I said at the beginning of this episode, I mean, this is something that, that I struggle a lot with, right? It's when, when the world starts falling apart around me, I end up in this negative loop where all of a sudden now I'm just hyper-focused on every bad thing that's happening to me in my life. And it really takes a stepping out of the moment and sitting there with yourself and like reworking that model in a reflective way. Like actually thinking about what happened, why did it happen, what could have been different, what's the worst thing that could have happened. That really starts to kind of train your brain to look at it differently. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think when people think about their own experience of anxiety, I know for me, the thing that's most potent about it, the most bothersome is the feelings, the feelings like the, especially for me, it's like a kind of torso, you know, like heart gut type of, uh, just pressure, uncomfortability, friction. Um, and so to kind of get into that a little bit, we were just talking about sort of a more kind of cognitive perceptual side of anxiety that we, you know, we we're just talking about this thalamus and uh, cortex interaction of where we're filtering for uh, negative information. But in addition to, um, to that, another thing that the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex are doing is telling our uh, our brainstem and our hypothalamus to engage in a stress response, to engage this fight or flight response, yeah. this feeling, or, or rather this physiology of muscle tension, increased heart rate, um, those kinds of, of uh, you know, your, your body's ready for action, ready to do something. And that's kind of what stress is all about, what anxiety is about to some degree, that your, your body is being prepared to do something, to escape or fight some sort of danger. And that's kind of the, the physiology, but what allows us to feel those feelings, what, where the, that becomes conscious is um, another brain region. So I'll do some more uh, neuroanatomical jargon here, but you, we might have heard of these if you've listened to our podcast. The insular cortex or insula, this region is very important. It's, it's key for our ability to feel our bodies, for, for us to sense those physiological changes, that interoception, as it's called. And so actually, we've been talking a lot about the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex, but a lot of studies actually indicate that the insular cortex and a nearby region called the anterior cingulate cortex, which are both involved in these, these physio, or, uh, sensing of our body, interoception, these are actually more closely linked to anxiety than even the amygdala has been. Um, at least in these big kind of meta-analyses of studies. Um, and I think that completely makes sense when we're talking about something like anxiety, because again, like for me, when I'm anxious about some upcoming, you know, thing I have to do or uh, what might happen with my finances or something, it's a feeling in my body. It's a, it's this sense that something is wrong and there there is a, a bodily signature of that. And so that's, a, I think, a key thing to, to think about in terms of the, the neurophysiology of 
of anxiety, that the insular cortex and this anterior cingulate cortex are deeply involved in our experience, our conscious experience of kind of what makes anxiety bad in the first place or unpleasant. <laughs> unpleasant. That's a, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Um, so this, this resonates with me a lot. Um, I have had really bad GI issues for a long time. And I think that those are very tied to the anxiety that I, I've experienced. I've, I've worked really stressful jobs. I'm in a really stressful environment with the, the PhD that I'm doing right now. Um, and when you really think about it, and this is, I'm, I'm trying to tie the thread between a lot of the things that we've just talked about, right? Because what we're seeing is what Joe Ledoux called the slow roads and the fast roads. So when information comes into our brain, it is hitting these these parts of the brain that are kind of in the middle, kind of deep in the brain first. And those parts of the brain are getting a really grainy image of what's going on out there, right? So let's say you're taking a picture on like a 90s flip phone, right? Like, is that a snake or is it a stick, right? In that situation, it's better for the amygdala to say that is a snake, right? Because it's, it's better to overestimate and be wrong right, than to underestimate and get bit, right? So the amygdala is like, ah, it's a snake, it's a snake, it's a snake. But then that grainy image then gets sent to the cortex. And it takes a lot longer for the cortex to put this image together and to say, you know what, I'm in high def now. It's a stick. We're good, right? But the amygdala is already on. It's like snake, snake, snake. And when the amygdala is on, it's kicking all of these physiological processes into gear. Like, like Andrew is just talking about, the hypothalamus kicks this stress response into gear. We're going to take an entire episode, our next episode is going to be all about the stress response, what stress does to our brain and body. But you now are going into this mode where your body is preparing for threat, right? And when it does that, it has to take a completely different stance. It has to divert blood and resources away from your gut, and it has to send them to the muscles instead, right? It, it doesn't make sense to be digesting right now when I may have to run for my life, right? And because of that, you end up with a lot of GI issues when you're anxious all the time because your body is constantly diverting resources away from things that usually happen when you're relaxed, right? There's this, this constant teeter-totter that we're on between fight and flight and rest and digest, right? I'm either like out there going and doing things or I'm sitting down, I'm relaxing, I'm letting my body digest and replenish itself and repair itself. But when we're in these hypervigilant states all the time, when we're anxious all the time, we're never giving our body the ability to do that. And so our body is constantly in this stress response, is constantly in this tightened muscle position. Uh, I've dealt with a ton of that in my back and all of these things. And what Andrew's getting at with the insula is that the insula is what's painting a picture to our brain of all of these things that are going on in the body, right? How that tension feels, how that kind of GI organ stuff feels and all of that. And when we start to notice that our body is not operating like it should and we're, we're like tense and we're shaking, we're doing all of these things, we become hyper-focused on our body. And then our body becomes a new source of stress, right? It's convincing us that we should be anxious, right? It's like... It's like, well, well, yeah, I, I, I mean, I should be anxious because my body's telling me that I'm anxious, right? There's all that, right? One of the really cool things about the insula, and we talked about this in our episode on interoception, if you want to go back and watch that one, it is like one of the most expanded regions in the human brain compared to kind of the non-human primates. And this is a really key point because our ability to have a map of what's going on in our body allows us to regulate our body. 
if we didn't know what was going on in our body, we wouldn't be able to use these fancy prefrontal cortex things to then change it, right? But one of the issues that I talked about earlier is that one of the hallmarks of anxiety is having a hyper-focus on the problem and not the solution, right? Because when we're in these heightened states, when we're feeling this, this tension and all of these things, we oftentimes get sucked into it, right? That's at least what I do, right? I'm just like, you know mm -hmm. what, I feel like crap, I complain yeah, about yeah. it, all of these things. When really what you should be, well, I don't want to should people, <laughs> what would be extremely helpful is to instead do some of the regulatory practices that science is showing us work really well at regulating these stress responses, breathing techniques, mindfulness, all of this kind of stuff that allows our body to say, you know what, we need to relax. Because we need to realize what I was saying is these slow roads and fast roads, the amygdala is kicking into gear like 10 times faster than the cortex. So now you're in this situation where your body thinks there's something scary out there, there's a threat out there, your brain finds out that it's not scary, but then you have to do the work to convince your body to stop, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And what happens, yeah. I think, with a lot of people yeah. is that it kicks into gear and then they get wrapped up in the fact that they're all hyped up and, and amped up instead of regulating. Yeah, you start like yeah. telling these stories. I think there's this, this is, uh, it's uh, great that you mentioned mindfulness because there's this relationship between um, the the insula or really the sort of salience network, a, a network involved in sensing our bodies, which also includes uh, the amygdala and the anterior cingulate, um, and the default mode network. And the default mode network we've talked about before has this uh, strong role in sort of talking to ourselves and telling ourselves the story of our lives and, and what's going on and sort of, it's, you know, I, this is a simplification, but you can sort of think of it as kind of the, the thinker in your head, the, the talker, the, the voice in the, your head, that is a simplification. But, but the reason I mentioned mindfulness is that studies show that meditation, mindfulness meditation specifically over time reduces the sort of coupling between those two networks, between the salience network and the default mode network. And it has this unique ability to allow us to feel those sensations as more neutral, as just simply bodily sensations without adding on this extra layer of thinking of, of what, what does that mean? Well, should, I guess I should be anxious because my body feels that way and because my, my physiology is, my heart rate's going, blah, 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 blah. And uh, mindfulness is, I mean, I think it's really amazing. I've, I've really been meditating a lot more than I had in the past couple of years. And I really have noticed this, this increased ability to separate the feeling from my thinking about that feeling. And so there's, we'll, um, I think, get into some of this a little later or throughout this episode, but I think it's really important to recognize that there, a lot of this does come down to like what Taylor said, these emotion regulation strategies. And it's not just about mindfulness, but also about uh, retraining your brain to not just see danger everywhere, to be able to sort of see, in reality, see things more realistically, you know, because again, like what we're talking about, anxiety has this effect of biasing your perceptual systems and your, um, you know, fight or flight response to be hyperactive in, you know, objectively non-threatening situations. And 
Andrew's describing a loop, right? And I think a lot of people can relate to the fact that we get stuck in these loops. That it's just like, you know what, there's this, this crazy stuff happening in my life, things are falling apart, and now I feel like crap too. And so I'm going to I'm going to get all hyped up about that, too. Right. And, and then we start to just go down this this downward spiral of just continually just focusing on all of these negative things that are happening to me that cause us to lose a sense of control in our lives that rob us of an outlet for that. Right. That discourage us from trying it all. Right. Because if I feel like I don't have any control, then why should I try it all? Right. And it's, it's really kind of what I think Andrew is really kind of getting at with a lot of this stuff is putting a pause in that spiral, right? In that loop is it saying, look, we just need to stop right now and separate ourselves from this. Because what Andrew's talking about with this separation from the default mode and the salience network, right? When these are coupled together, you have the salience network, which Andrew's saying is like the, the insula and the ACC. It's, it's us detecting that there's, there's bad things in the world and detecting that our body feels really bad. And then when that's coupled with the default mode network, we're now telling ourselves a story about it. We're getting wrapped up in it. But if we can stop and just pause and just let that kind of stuff just kind of flow and don't attach ourselves to it, don't give it any meaning, then that's when we're able to kind of start taking that separation from the spiral a little bit. Uh, and I mean, I, I have found a lot of benefit from that. The other thing that I find a lot of benefit from too is, is exercise. And there's a really good reason for that too, because I, I heard this really good example from Robert Sapolsky. And uh, we'll probably talk about it on our next episode too, but he was talking about uh, a gazelle. And a gazelle, when it's being hunted, it's being hunted by, uh, by cheetahs, right? And gazelles can't outrun cheetahs. So when they see a cheetah, they actually just hunker down and they try to not be seen. And he was saying that that's actually more demanding than running away because you have to just like completely tense up, like not move a muscle, but then have all of your muscles tense enough and ready to run if the cheetah does see you. And what happens after the cheetah goes away and the gazelle realizes it's safe is that gazelle just runs all over the place, right? And what it's doing is when you exercise, you are telling your muscles that they need to then take a relaxing recuperative type of kind of posture after that exercise, right? So when we're in this really anxious state and we're tensed up and we're doing all of this stuff, if you exercise, you're now giving your body this physiological kind of signal that like, okay, we've gotten it out. It's now time to relax, to recuperate, to let all that stuff go. That doesn't involve any of the cognitive stuff that we're talking about. If you're averse to mindfulness or meditation or whatever, that's this other kind of avenue into it. Yeah, I, I exercise yeah. is like primary, I think. Because, um, yeah, you're discharging that stress. Like we were saying, stress response is yeah. all about getting your body ready to do something, tensing your muscles, increasing your blood pressure, um, re, you know, sh shunting energy from your digestive processes to these um, muscular uh, processes, that needs to be kind of discharged in some way. And so, yeah, exercise is a great way to do that for sure. Um, and yeah, there's, there's other like ways of shifting your biochemistry too, that, that can be really beneficial, like cold plunges and things like this, that, um, just kind of reset the system to, to a different state almost, and, uh, have this, this similar effect to exercise. But yeah, your point about exercise is really good one. I think that's like 
that's primary. And also, um, being mindful about what you eat, like just generally, um, cause some foods, uh, like, you know, you might have an allergy to something you might have, uh, like celiac or, or something like that, that, um, puts you, so when you eat gluten, you have a greater inflammatory response and that can change again, this like gut biochemistry and, sorry, I'm kind of rambling here, but another point I wanted to mention was, was eating. So I, uh, I, I just saw this short, um, it was a really old video of Jordan Peterson and people have all kinds of, uh, uh, opinions about him. But anyway, he was talking about, it was just like this really short clip where he says, the next time you feel anxious, get a snack, try getting a snack. And I'm not saying to always uh, that food is like a, always a great thing to go to, especially if it's unhealthy food. But I know for me, I will show this to people because uh, just to make this point, I have this giant bowl of peanuts <laughs> that I have to put on my desk <laughs> because I will forget to eat in the morning. And then by midday, I'm like, God, I feel like tired and anxious and just like, what's wrong with me? I, things are going badly in my life. <laughs> and then I eat and a few 30 minutes later, I'm like, oh yeah, okay. I was just hungry. And then my system was interpreting that lack, that dysfunction or not dysfunction, but that uh, physiological state as this is something to be really worried about. So it's like, we are obviously we're, we're intelligent creatures. You, the viewer watching, you're a smart person. I'm not saying like, uh, you're stupid or anything, but your brain has trouble differentiating between what is just purely a physiological state and what is, uh, you know, an actual something to actually be worried about. So just you know, keep that idea in mind. If you haven't eaten for a while and you're like me, you have trouble remembering to eat in the morning, maybe keep a bowl of peanuts nearby. <laughs> so I've, I've said this on the show before, the, the body doesn't speak English, right? The body is sending us these signals that a lot of the times we don't have the capability of understanding, right? And a lot of the times we don't really listen in the way that's, that's beneficial. Like our body's trying to tell us like, hey, we're hungry, but instead we're like, our body's telling us that there's something wrong, that, that we're not capable or whatever, right? Uh, when really it was just like, hey, eat some peanuts. Uh, and I think it, it really kind of ties back into one of the points I was trying to make earlier. In, in fact, like in the regards to the brain is constantly making this kind of distinction about whether or not I should go and try to accomplish things or whether I should conserve resources, right? Because that's a, that's a really important calculation for the brain to be making. Uh, put yourself back on the savanna, right? Should I go out and spend the next eight hours trying to hunt some type of gazelle, or am I so impoverished of, of not eating for the past few days that that has the potential of actually killing me, right? And we now live in the society where we have all of this stuff, right? One of the, the main threads that's kind of coming through in this episode is that all of those ancient kind of calculations are still happening in our brain. Uh, we just did this whole episode on consciousness a couple episodes ago. And I think one of the most important things to realize is that like 98% of what your brain is doing, you're not aware of. It's making all of these calculations about, you know, it's, it's looking at, at the past, like how successful have I been doing this in the past? Oh, I failed a bunch, right? So I probably shouldn't try again because if I spend a bunch of resources trying this, I'm just going to fail again, right? I, 
all of these things, right? And one of the things that Andrew's saying with eating is that your body is making this calculation of, I don't have enough resources to keep working, to keep going to kind of achieving this goal. And so you have this, this kind of teeter-totter of your brain saying, you know what, throw resources out there, activate muscles, activate brain power. I mean, the brain being three pounds takes up 25% of our resources, right? And so if the body's like, we don't have any energy, it's going to start saying, turn down the brain, start turning down these cognitive things. And you're going to start getting anxious because you're going to say, look, I really want to keep working. I have this deadline or whatever, but I'm getting all of these signals that I'm not capable, that I'm not competent. Yeah. And that kind of brings sleep to mind. Like whenever we're sleep deprived, anxiety is I think easier to access, so to speak. Like we, we are more readily uh, put into an anxious state when we don't, when our brain hasn't been given that chance to recover. And we have a whole episode on sleep on all the amazing things that sleep does for your brain physiology, including just like clearing out waste, like literally pumping waste out of the brain, but also, um, reconfiguring your memories, your schema about the world, about yourself. And um, so sleep is just another one of these uh, kind of purely physiological, physical health type of things that can be really important for reducing just, I think even just our tendency to go to negative emotions and to go to this place of stress and anxiety. There's a a really important concept when it comes to alleviating anxiety in the way that it's studied, and that's called extinction learning, right? If you you shock a rat, that rat is going to learn that this is a threatening environment, right? Uh, And it's going to now be afraid of that environment that you shocked it in. But now, if you let that rat explore that environment for days and weeks or months or whatever, and there's no shock that rat is updating its memory about whether or not that environment is threatening, right? And this kind of gets back to what we were talking about kind of at the beginning of the episode in terms of our body, our our brain kind of creating this model of the probability of threat out in the world. And what we need to be doing is updating that model. And one of the things that's really important in terms of sleep is that if I go out and I do... I challenge myself. I do something that I'm afraid of in with the intent of trying to convince my brain that it's not as scary as I thought it was. It is really important to then sleep that night, to get a good night's sleep that night. Because if you're creating a new memory, you need to allow your brain to actually consolidate that new memory. Yeah, your brain replays and, and consolidates those memories while you're asleep. Like that's one of the, the main times that you're... Uh, hippocampus is in communication with your cortex, the, this memory region and this, uh, you know, more kind of where memories are stored and are higher thought and things like that. So there's these neurophysiological processes happening during sleep that are consolidating those memories. That's, that's a really great point. Um, I think in addition to some of these strategies for just purely reducing anxiety, um, in addition to the sort of physiological stuff we've been talking about, as well as this retraining your brain and your schemas about what is and isn't dangerous in the world. Um, I think it's important to kind of go also to the positive side. And we've had a couple different episodes on, um, on, uh, aspects of positive psychology 
and talked about some of this work in like learned hopelessness and or learned helplessness, rather similar kind of thing. Um, but th- there is good research on the idea that when we believe that we have kind of more control over our environment, we are more likely to actually take the actions that allow us to, uh, to like have positive effect on our lives and on uh, our goals. Um, So there is uh, this, I think this aspect of having more positive beliefs about what you're capable of and um, just continually retraining your brain to see the world as more filled with opportunities rather than sources of danger. And that can sound really simplistic but I think it's really important to keep in mind that we naturally have a negative bias. We naturally focus on the negative stuff more than the positive, and this often causes us to go to anxiety and to negative emotions. And so when we can kind of balance that out and be more realistic about what is actually possible, what the world is actually like, it's it's not just oh positive thinking like everything's great all the time. It really is, I think, having a more rational, better understanding of of the world and and what you as an individual are capable of, especially when it comes to your own mental health. And I think it's important to to highlight why we may have a negative bias, right? Uh, it was it was kind of linked to something I said earlier that it's actually kind of evolutionarily adaptive to overestimate threat, right? I, it's better for me to think that something's threatening and be wrong than it is for me to not think that it's threatening and for it to, to, to like kill me or to do something bad to me in some way, right? And so we have this kind of overestimation built into us. Um, and what I think Andrew's really trying to get at is that we, we need to have some insight into that overestimation. We need to know that it's there, and then we need to build some kind of buffer around it. And one of the really important things that Andrew was getting at with this sense of control was that I wanted to, I want to put that into context. I want to give some example with this, right? Because it's easy to say, just get more control in your life, but like, how do you do that, right? Like you go to work, your, your boss is a jerk, right? You don't have any control over what your boss does to you. You're, you're getting in fights with, with your spouse or with your, your roommates or whatever. You don't have control over how they think and how they do things to you, right? A lot of building a sense of control is wrapped up with a sense of acceptance, right? It's accepting the things in the world that I can't control. I can't control what he does, I can't control what she does, I can't control what my boss does, or any of these kind of things, but what I can control is my reaction to it, is my focus on what it is that I can do moving forward. And a lot of the building a sense of agency, building a sense of control, is actually done in really small steps, right? You are, you're you're setting small goals for yourself throughout the entire day of like, what is it that I can do that might make me feel a little bit better? And you do that really small thing and you do feel a little bit better in that moment. And you say to yourself, I just controlled that, right? There are all these other people that are controlling me that are making me feel terrible, but I did this one small thing and it did make me feel a little bit better, right? One of the things that I struggle with a lot is that when things start to spiral and get out of control, I disengage completely, right? There are certain things that I that I do, like I do this uh, 
meditation and motion practice called Siam Hasani. It's kind of like a Tai Chi-esque type thing uh, that when I do it, it helps a lot. In that moment, right afterwards, I feel great. It doesn't fix everything, right? It doesn't make my anxiety go away. But then I end up in these situations where I'm at the bottom of the barrel, right? I'm at the bottom of the spiral. And I get into this, this mode where I'm like, it didn't fix me. So I'm just not going to do it at all, mm. right? Mm. Where instead, the better strategy is to realize that all of these little things, right, that we've been talking about, uh, focus on how you feel after you eat a good, healthy meal, right? You just had control over that. You controlled what you ate and how it made you feel. How do you feel after you get an intentional good night of sleep? How do you feel after 10 minutes of engaging in a mindful practice, right? It's those little things that actually build up that end up buffering against this thing. Uh, I've heard, I can't remember who it was. We got into it when we were talking about positive psychology, but he talked about this scale that we're trying to balance. And on the one hand, you have this negative stuff that's got a rock on it that's really hard. And all of the, the positive stuff that you do is all feathers. But if you can add enough feathers to that side, you can start balancing out that rock. But it takes a lot of effort. And that's one of the things that's really tough in these situations is that the more you get down the spiral, the more your brain starts to give up. And it's in those moments that you really have to challenge yourself to engage. And that's really hard to do. Yeah, yeah, it reminds me. I think it might have been Roy Baumeister who, who was talking about that. But at least he, talk, he talked about the... Um, he, he has said before that at least some of his research shows that you need four positive things to outweigh one negative thing. So just, I don't know if that ratio is like exact, but it, it just kind of gets at this point that we have a more negative bias. I was noticing myself the other day, just looking at um, headlines. Like I, I, this maybe isn't great, but I like avoid reading the news and watch because I just think it's, uh, it's, it does have a negativity bias. If it bleeds, it leads. But I noticed myself looking through the headlines and there was one like really good thing that, that happened. It was you know, something about you know, cri crime rate reduction in some city. And then there was one that was like <laughs> economic prospects look bad for you know, the area of, that I live in. And I'm like, huh, like that one was just more powerful in like attracting me to it. And I just kind of noticed that negativity bias in myself. Um, but to, to, uh, to add on to what you're saying, I think a lot of this is about recognizing the areas in which we do have control. And when we are making progress toward our goals, I really think that the progress toward our goals as well as that um, acknowledging what the positive things that have happened really does shift your mindset into just like better feeling, but also more effective at dealing with challenges because none of this stuff that we're talking about is going to eliminate the, uh, the bad, th or the, the challenging things that happen in your life. None of it is going to just kill all that but what it's going to do is help yeah. you have a calmer more positive state of mind in approaching those things and even if you're you know equally effective in your negative state versus your positive state you should want i mean i would want to be in a positive state when approaching those those challenges again i'm not like taylor's talking about we're not saying we're perfect like i struggle with this all the time but one of the things that I've I've adopted that has helped me a ton with this that I've talked about many times on these uh, episodes on my channel is 
an evidence-based practice called the three good things practice. And um, I add like a little twist to it, but basically what you do is you can do this. I do it sometimes in 10 minutes, but sometimes I do it in like five or six minutes. So you can just do this really quickly. Um, and what it is, is you sit down at the end of your day or even at the beginning of your day and you think about the past 24 hours and you just try to pick out three good things that happened, three things that were positive. And it could be really small things. It could be, I got, um, and I got a workout in yesterday. I, uh, or I, I made progress on a, a project I'm working on, or I spent time, you know, with my dog in the park or something like that. And you write down these three things and then you write down why they happened. And especially what your role, your agency, what you did to make them happen, how they made you feel. And I add this on, what's a little lesson you can derive from that? What could, what could lead you to more experiences like that in the future? And just could, all this could be one sentence each or one, you know, bullet points, even if you're not, you know, you don't want to take that much time, but doing this once isn't going to make a huge difference. Doing it for a week might help, but doing it over and over and over again, day after day, week after week, you know, month after month, this does make a difference. And again, this is an evidence-based practice that has been replicated in a, a lot of studies in positive psychology as showing um, an increase in happiness or in positive emotions and in people's, um, I don't know if this part is necessarily replicated, but sense of agency. I, I definitely feel at least for myself, a greater sense of control over my life when I'm doing this practice on a regular basis. Um, and so I think another part of this that I was just mentioning is staying consistent with these things. Any of this stuff that we're talking about, if it's, whether it's mindfulness or exercise or um, some of the you know, retraining your brain or doing the three good things or any of this stuff, it has to be consistent. You can't do it once and expect a, a automatic change. You might feel better. You probably will feel a little better, but the really long-term change in your mindset and in your you know, level of happiness and anxiety, that is only going to come with real consistent practice. And, and yeah, because change doesn't happen overnight. And if it feels like friction, it's working. Yes. <laughs> because change requires some kind of like tense feeling, right? That like a lot of the, the effortful things that you're talking about, Andrew, are the things that are engaging like dopamine and norepinephrine that are getting your body kind of amped up, right? But one of the really important things, I think the reason why this three good things works is baked into our attention networks. We have two different types of attention. We have one kind of attention that's really effortful and direct. We can choose what we want to look at, what we want to think about, what we want to pay attention to. And we have another attention system that's really reflexive, right? That we get distracted by things, right? There's things in the environment that are pulling us, whether it's threat or whether it's other things, right? What you really have to realize is that the directed attention is training the other attention on what to look for, mm -hmm. right? And so if you're constantly thinking about all of the bad things in your environment, you're teaching your reflexive attention network to look for bad things. 
And if you are instead taking that effortful time to really convince yourself that there's good things happening, we can look for good things, we can find good things, you're teaching your reflexive attention system to when you're not actively effortfully doing something to actually look for those good things in the environment, right? And that could be, I mean, this is tied into all of these neuroplasticity processes that we've talked about on this show too. And one of the most important things about neuroplasticity is that it's not easy. It takes consistent practice, right? Because the old way of doing things, that easy way of just consistently looking for bad things and complaining about things, that is like hardwired at this point because you've done it so much. And as soon as you give up on this practice, you're right back in there, right? And so it takes that just every day, hiking a different path, right? Cutting back those bushes, climbing those rocks. It's effortful. It feels like work, but like as soon as you go back to that old path, it's already paved for you. It's easy to walk. You don't even have to think about it, right? Yeah, but that's so true. I, no, yeah. go ahead. No, yeah, no, you go ahead. Well, yeah, and just um, to add on to that, that that's generally in um, learning, like psychology of learning, there is this uh, finding that when a learn like a strategy for learning something, whether it's for a class or or anything else that you need to really learn and memorize when you are actually putting forth more effort, when it feels more uncomfortable, like forcing yourself to come up with an answer, it's usually a more effective form of learning than just, you know, rereading what you read. So just to kind of, that's another aspect of that because this is a process of learning. It's a process of neuroplasticity. And I just wanted to mention two other practices that I think would be helpful in developing this uh, positive positivity and, and, uh, reducing anxiety. Um, one is called mental subtraction. And a lot of the time we are focused on what we don't have on what's wrong with our lives on what could possibly go wrong, right? That's what anxiety is about. What could go wrong? What could I lose? Or what, what could attack me? (laughs) What could be dangerous? Um, mental subtraction in a kind of a inverted strange way takes advantage of that tendency, but in a positive way. So what it is, is you take a moment to think about something that's important to you, that's positive in your life. It could be a person or a situation or a thing. Um, and you think about what would my life be like without that? What, what would it, what would happen to me? What would be without that person or without this, you know, situation? And really think about what it would be like and then come back to the present and think about um, what uh, what you are, sorry, <laughs> you th- first think about what uh, what it would be like without that. And then you think about your life as it is now and uh, what kind of lessons you can learn from that sense of gratitude that you have for that thing, for that person. And so it flips that what I don't have to what I do have and what I have to be grateful for. So mental subtraction, that's, that's one. And then the other one is uh, another kind of gratitude practice that I don't know what the actual name of it is, but I call it who's grateful for you. And this is one that I heard Andrew Huberman kind of talk about that uh, this is somewhat new in this uh, gratitude uh, literature, but it's this idea that it's, powerful to think about a recent experience when someone else was grateful for something you did or just for your presence or 
or they, some, it could be a small thing, somebody thanking you for, you know, uh, you even at like a, you go to a coffee shop and you buy a coffee and the person thanks you. Like it could be as small as that, but you can probably find situations where other people are grateful for, <laughs> for something you've done or for your presence and just reflecting on that and reflecting on why they felt that way about you and what you could, again, do in the future. What lessons can you learn from that? And um, it, all of these practices, again, consistency is important, but what they're all aimed at, I think, is enhancing the sense of agency, not only over sort of the outcomes in our lives, but over our, like Taylor was saying, our perception of the world and of ourselves. So let's, let's tie this all together then, right? Yeah, so I think the, the main, no, 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 it's, it's perfect, right? So I think the, the main kind of idea throughout this entire episode is that there are kind of two systems at play when it comes to anxiety, right? There's this kind of automatic system that kicks our body into gear and makes our body feel all jittery and anxious or whatever. Uh, there's kind of an overemphasis on focus on those bodily things when this stuff happens. But then there's also this just completely cognitive compulsion, uh, this completely po cognitive portion of it uh, where we're telling stories about everything that's going on. We're, we're complaining about it. We're making excuses. We're doing all of these things that really prolong our feeling of that state, right? And we went through all of these practices of ways to kind of bring that down through breathing, through mindfulness, through all of this kind of stuff, uh, gratitude practices like Andrew's talking about. Uh, but really, I think one of the most important things that, that really comes out of this is getting clear with yourself about what it is that you want to accomplish. What are your goals? What are your values? What are those things that are important to you? And why is it that you're so worried about kind of those things falling apart or whatever it may be? And what are the actions that you can take, the small little things that you can do to kind of regain some control in a positive direction with these kind of things, I think can go a really long way with a lot of this stuff. Um, and so I think we are about time. You got anything else you want to say, Andrew? No, I think that's perfect. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, one of the things we do want to highlight is that we are kind of doing a different format with the show this year. Uh, we are going to be doing two episodes a month uh, on kind of related topics. Uh, and we now have a new kind of tier in our Patreon kind of support channel uh, where we're going to be doing kind of a Patreon only episode where Andrew and I kind of combine and link together the ideas from these these different shows. So this month we're doing anxiety and stress, uh, and then we're going to have a, a bonus episode where we really dive into how anxiety and stress are so intimately intertwined with one another and how that affects our, our physiology, our brain, our mental health, all of these kind of things. And so if that's something you're interested in, we, we highly, highly recommend kind of getting into that and helping us out. We're trying to kind of keep the show going and uh, trying to get as much as we can to continue doing what we love doing and coming on and doing this. Yeah, and I'll just note about those uh, kind of uh, those Patreon bonus episodes. Um, I think it's going to be more kind of conversational, more relaxed. Uh, we're going to be kind of talking a little bit more loosely about these things and uh, maybe more about like our lives and our experiences with them, but also trying to bring together everything we've talked about in the other two episodes from the month. So I think it'll be a really great addition to everything that we do. And again, yeah, if, if that's of interest to you, definitely go check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash the social brain. I was, yes, I think it's that. The link is in the description, uh, but go check that out and just consider 
um, jumping on that. I think you'd probably really enjoy the episodes if you listen to our show at all. Um, and also, again, yeah, this is just really important for us to be able to keep doing this show. Um, so your support in any form is highly appreciated. So thank you all for checking out this new year, new social brain, <laughs> new episode. And a happy new year, everybody. Thank you.